Today's scripture reading is from Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there, were no more, there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic man carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Good morning. My name is Danny Clark. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, I'm the RUF minister at the College of Charleston. That means Reform University Fellowship. Um, and I'm so happy to be here to be able to fill in um, for Jeremy and your elders who are away on a much needed retreat. Um, so, um, when I was in grad school in St. Louis uh, around 2000, six. Uh, Aspa, my wife and I, we were babysitting uh, two young boys for a couple who were out of town. And we were set to pick up uh, their relatives at the airport. And um, so that uh, we, they were going to take over babysitting for us. And just before we were going to the airport, uh, Coleman, my son, who was then about two and a half, and those boys were running around the living room and Coleman hit his head. Uh, on the corner of the coffee table, just above his eye. And blood started gushing everywhere in the room. And uh, so it, it was clear that he needed to go to the hospital. And uh, so Aspa grabbed Coleman and took him to the ER, and I agonizingly uh, took the two boys to the airport and waited for their relatives to land. And it was like a really frustrating time to me. It was, um, I was wondering how Coleman was doing, uh, but it was actually far worse for Aspa um, because uh, she was required to hold down a screaming and squirming two-and-a-half-year-old as a doctor investigated his wound and uh, tried to put stitches in it. And after what seemed to be forever, uh, the relatives, they landed, and I dropped them off at the airport, and I booked it to the hospital as fast as I could. But on the way, I stopped at a gas station, and because uh, I'm really smart, and uh, I ran in and I bought gummy worms. And so I arrived at the ER and I was directed to the back uh, uh, to this little room that Coleman was in, and he was being held by Aspa and the stitches just having been uh, completed, but screaming still like a maniac. And so I, I opened the curtain and I came in, 
And it becomes at that moment like slow motion for me in my memory. And uh, Coleman's little teary eyes, they like look up, gazing at me um, over his face, and he reaches out to me. And like all in one swift movement, I also pull out the bag of gummy worms, ripping it open, and I grab him with one hand, with them in the other, and it was this unbelievable moment. Um, And so, again, this is how I remember it, and the crying stops, uh, turning to to the silence of contentment um, as he munched on the gummy worms, and then I remembered Aspa's face. The look of disgust, (laughs) of fury. Uh, She experienced the torture, and I was the hero, right? Uh, For for weeks, as the coffee table event, as it became known, um, made its way through our seminary community, people would ask Aspa to recount the traumatic event, and Coleman's one contribution to the story would always be, my dad brought me gummy worms. To this day, Coleman loves gummy worms. End of story, right? So, why do I mention that? I think that in reality, what was absolutely necessary for Coleman? The stitches, right? What was Coleman's felt need? The gummy worms. So, you know, as I've reflected on today's passage, on and off for the last several weeks, I've realized that we are much more like two-and-a-half-year-old Coleman uh, than we'd like to believe, whether it's something simple like the ice cream I needed last night at 10.15 when I was struggling with the words for this sermon, or the simple words of appreciation a parent needs from their child or spouse once in a while, right? or the quiet and privacy that an oldest child desperately needs away from younger siblings, or the the need that a worker has of even an ounce of meaningfulness in their job that feels empty and pointless so often. I think that our deep longings, our felt needs, often drive our actions and, and determine our realities. And so that's what we're looking at today. Um, Aspa and I, uh, we recently uh, watched a couple movies that had unreliable narrators. Um, And this meant that you couldn't totally trust what you were watching. Uh, You couldn't be sure that it was reality. And that's how it is with our felt needs, frankly. Um, And it's why the prophet Jeremiah famously said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the, the problem of our passage this morning is that our lives are not ruled by reality quite often, but by our felt needs. All right, so the, the main idea that I'd like you guys to get from this um, is that we must pay careful attention to Jesus' teaching because he reorders our lives according to reality. All right, so today um, we're going to see the reality of three things. First, the reality of Jesus' priority. Uh, Second, the reality of His authority. And third, the reality of His glory, Um, as our felt needs are subordinated to their proper place. 
although that probably doesn't feel good to hear, but it'll feel better later. All right, so let's go ahead and look at the passage. In verse 1, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. All right, Capernaum seems to have been Jesus' home base for ministry, even if he grew up in Nazareth. It was at the synagogue in Capernaum uh, that on the Sabbath he taught with great authority, unlike the scribes, and cast a demon out of a man, shutting it up when it recognized him for who he was, you know, being God's son. So word started to spread around, if you remember back a couple weeks, uh, around the region about him. Capernaum is also where Jesus entered Peter's mother's house and healed her, uh, which then led to tons of people bringing the sick and demon-possessed to him for healing, so much so that the whole city came to the door of his house. So, Jesus is… basically, Jesus was the Beatles of first-century Palestine. that's the best way I could explain it. If you were here last week, you would remember that uh, after that night when he did all of these healings and people were bringing, like, he became so famous and popular um, that uh, um, as he said to, to his disciples the next morning, let us go on to the next town so that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. He had to, like, get out of town. And so then, uh, his greater mission was really to preach, to proclaim God's good news to people, not to be just purely this miracle worker. And and word needed to get out. And if you were here last week, you also might remember that when he was away at other towns in Galilee, he met a man with leprosy. And after healing the guy, because he had compassion on the man… Jesus became so famous that he couldn't even openly go into any town because he was the Beatles. Um, so we had to remain in desolate places. Um, he, he had much bigger plans than just healing people. And so in verse 1 when it says he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. So what's going to happen now that Jesus is home? Well, let's see the scene. Verse 2, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So can you imagine this being what it's like to come home? The whole house is so packed that you couldn't even get to the door, much less into the house. The only time I've ever seen anything like this was when I was at an ill-advised party in high school, right? The, the whole school had found out about it that day, and you couldn't even get through the front porch because there were so many people there. And so, um, I was forced to go around to the side, uh, you know, around the fence and hang out in the backyard, and I felt so bad for that kid's parents, just thinking, oh my gosh, do they have any idea what's going on at their house? Um, if I had been a little more godly, I might have said, oh, this is like Jesus at Capernaum. But... In this story, at least, Jesus is getting to do what he intended, right? Right? He, he, he was preaching the word to them. Well, not, not so much, right? Uh, look with me at verses 3 and 4. They came, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I mean, this is a famous story. You've heard it probably before. So, you know, there were four men, and I heard one person suggest that they were probably actually young men, um, because this is the kind of brashness and sort of ideal love that you know, you'd find along young men rather than old. Um, I probably would have been like, oh, that would hurt my back. Um, and so Jesus uh, later addressed the paralytic as son. Um, and so apparently, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they go up the staircase on the side of the house. Houses uh, in this time and location had flat mud roofs that were covered with straw. And, and perhaps if it was an especially fancy home, which we don't know if Peter's was or not, you can imagine, uh, you know, like, if you're Jesus, these young men pulling back the straw, and all of a sudden, boom, 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 you know, like, part of the roof starting to cave in while you're trying to teach. Um, you know, uh, so... Several years ago, a young man came into our uh, large group meeting at RUF um, uh, at the College of Charleston, and um, he came into the meeting about 10 minutes into my sermon, and he very loudly uh, made his way down the middle aisle, sat in the front row, took his time, like, taking his backpack and his jacket off, and was, like, everyone was looking at him, and I couldn't concentrate at all. It was, like, so frustrating. And uh, I kept losing my train of thought as it was happening. And then about five minutes later, he got up and he walked out of the meeting in front of everyone, returning 15 minutes later with this delicious-smelling Chick-fil-A sandwich in his hand, which he then sat down with and, like, poured the Chick-fil-A sauce on and just started... Like, you could hear him eating while I'm trying to preach. And... Um, so, um, it became sort of folklore among our students who would threaten uh, to leave small group or my meetings with them one-on-one -on -one or even large group and return with a Chick-fil-A sauce smothered, you know, chicken sandwich and loudly eat it in front of me. But you can imagine, well, I mean, can you? Trying to teach the Word, again, this is Jesus' mission I came out to teach, not just to be a faith healer, right? With a number of religious leaders in the room, and all of a sudden it's boom, boom, boom. You know, like pieces of mud falling from the ceiling, and part of it falls through into the packed room, and four arms descend holding the corners of a mat on which a young man crumbled up his laying. You know, just a minor distraction, right? And I would have been thinking, another healing, right? Like, because uh, that's um, how my fallen mind goes. But, you know, you can't wait until I finish teaching. I mean, you know, um, are you going to pay to fix my friend's roof? Um, and if you're the young man, can you picture your eyes meeting those of Jesus as you're lowered down? I'd probably give him the look, hey, this wasn't my idea. You know, like, um, but how did Jesus respond? Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. 
He saw their faith. This man's desperation was great, and their desperation for their friend was great. Who has faith? The one who has needs. The old saying of, you'll find no atheists in foxholes. You know, I think that that's the, um, it's a true statement. So, um, how would you have felt if you were this man? Um, he didn't say, like, your faith has healed you, I mean, which would have been par for the course, right? That would have been, we've heard that a million times from Jesus. But why didn't he? Instead, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. How would you have felt if you were that young man crumbled on the mat? I would have been like, uh, excuse me, do you not see my legs? This man's needs aren't like our felt needs, are they? He was unable to walk. You know, I would have been like, Jesus, this is not a gummy bears at the hospital situation, right? This is bigger. His whole life is ruled and dictated by his inability to walk. And this is so desperate that his friends punched through a stranger's ceiling in front of a crowded room of respectable adults. When I was eight, I read a children's biography of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and my parents were so pleased with me that they let uh, a friend of our family take me to see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar speak at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And after listening to him speak, I stood in line for two hours to get his autograph. And I approached him, and I told him how much I admired him, and I held out my kid's biography to sign. And do you know what he said to me? He said, sorry, kid. I only signed my autobiography. Next. How's eight? Are you joking? Kareem, come on. I became a Celtics fan. But... When I got home that night, my parents asked, did you get to meet Kareem? And I said, yes. And they asked, well, what did he say? And I said, sorry, kid. I only signed my autobiography. Next. You know, could you imagine what this paralyzed young man must have felt? What am I going to do? Tell my parents when they ask, did you meet Jesus? Yes. And what did he say? Sorry, kid. Your sins are forgiven. Right? Next. What's Jesus doing here? He's adjusting our realities. People come to Jesus because they have needs. Perhaps they're lonely. Perhaps their families are broken. Perhaps they have some life-threatening situation or illness. Perhaps they're in financial trouble. Perhaps they're overwhelmed with the brokenness of the world. I've often heard the phrase, uh, I need to get my life together. But no student ever meets with me, a campus minister, to ultimately hear about Jesus unless they see themselves in great need. Nobody accepts an invitation to church rather than sleeping in or going to brunch with friends 
unless they see need. But Jesus sees every need we have as gummy bears at the hospital compared to our need for forgiveness. Our greatest need. Jesus' priority of our need is forgiveness. So think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It goes sort of from bottom to top. You've got like physiological needs, you know, air, food, water, clothing, reproduction. Then second level, safety needs, right? Job, property, personal security. Third level, like uh, love and belonging. So that's like friendship, intimacy, family. Fourth level, esteem. So that's like respect, status, you know, uh, recognition, freedom. And then fifth level is like where you really want to be, self-actualization, where you're becoming everything you wanted to be. And so where's your greatest felt need on that chart? Where, Where are you? Jesus is saying, more than you need clothes or food or water, more than you need air, you need forgiveness. When we ask, who do I perceive myself to be? Jesus doesn't say the one with the great felt needs. He says the one who needs forgiveness. But why not just heal the guy, right? And, and, and then tell him his sins are forgiven, right? Because Jesus didn't come out to heal and, oh, by the way, forgive sins. His mission was to preach the word, the good news, and then die in our place for our sins so that they would be forgiven. Why? Because he loves us more than we understand. And that's our greatest need. We not only need forgiveness, we need to see that forgiveness is our greatest need. And that's what he's doing here. We need our realities adjusted to his priority. And so this was a teachable moment. So, who do you perceive yourself to be? The one who has great needs? The one who needs forgiveness? Or the one who needs to see how desperately he needs forgiveness? How many times, let me ask you, how many times did you repent this week? What is repentance? It's when you see your sin, then you hate your sin, you confess your sin to God, you receive his forgiveness, you turn away from that sin, and you run toward God in his will. So how many times did you repent this week? I would argue that if you live a single day without deep-rooted repentance, it's a day in which you lived in a fictional world according to your felt needs. And that fictional aspect is destructive. Why do students cheat on tests? My life depends on making this grade, keeping me from sensing guilt and shame. Why do parents control every aspect of their children? My life depends on their success, making up for my sense of guilt and shame. Why does a person become a workaholic? My life depends on my success, covering my guilt and shame. 
you're picking up, you know, uh, why does a person eat ice cream late at night or scroll through their Instagram on their phone in bed? My life depends on this comfort that distracts me from my guilt and shame. Why does a person hold a grudge against a friend or loved one for not loving them in their love language or the way that they want to be loved? Their life depends on being loved how they perceive love should be in order to cover their sense of guilt and shame. Are the biggest problems in your life ultimately rooted in the external? You know, the world out there or the internal inside of you? I have a good friend who was cheated on by her spouse. She was having a terrible time trying to forgive him, though he was incredibly repentant. She could feel sorry for him, but she couldn't forgive him or even begin to imagine reconciliation. After months of conversations, we realized that her dad never really made her feel loved or safe. And so she coped with that by becoming Teflon. Nothing could affect her. No one could take her down. No one, you know, like, so the problem was with him, her dad. She was perfectly lovable. And in a sense, ideally, as a daughter, that's true, right? But so then anyone she became close to, they posed a threat to her. And her problems were almost always tended to be rooted in her friends or other things external to her. So when it came to this guy, she was never able to ask, could there have been something deficient or wrong in me? What could I have done to contribute to this? And that's not to say, don't hear me wrong, that's not to say that she made him cheat. It's just that she couldn't see that she was sinful too. That no sinful person is ever enough for another person. So her inability to look internally for the problem kept her from being able to forgive him to reconcile with him. And so, what are the greatest problems, or let's say, your greatest needs in life? If your greatest problems or needs are purely external, then you are living in a make-believe world constructed of your felt needs and missing the reality of Jesus' priority. And that's not to say that the healing of a paralyzed man isn't something to long for. It's just not your greatest need. Do you ever say, man, why was I so demanding of that thing right then? And you're thinking back about something. Like, oh, it doesn't seem as such a big deal now. What changed? The moment. Because we can't trust our feelings. But when we repent our felt needs become lesser. They're put in their proper place. So let me be concrete, perfectly concrete. We need to practice repentance throughout the day. Like more than once. Um, uh, This past month I've been uh, like really battling a number of sins that I hadn't even seen in my life before and really struggling with the the stress of that. And... um, I started having to like 
like really depending on pouring out my heart to God in the morning. But then, like I found by the middle of the day, I was thinking dark, dark thoughts. And so by the late afternoon, I started like having to repent again. Like I would go back to my, like I'm very visual, so I write down my prayers. And so I, I would have to go back and start praying again. And it was amazing to me. Uh, I, I was just thinking, oh, I'm so awful. But then I remembered um, a book that I read like 20 years ago um, called The Forgotten Spurgeon. And it was about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, this great famous um, Baptist preacher in the 1800s who would preach before 10,000 people. And there were times that people had to like carry him up to the pulpit in order to preach because he was so depressed, so heavy over his own sin so working through it himself. Funny enough, that's the guy who wrote the devotional morning and evening. And I just always thought that he did that because, you know, he was extra spiritual. But no, he was desperate (laughs) to be tied back to reality and not his fictional world. So not only do we need to see the reality of Jesus' priority, you know, the forgiveness of sins, we also need to be awakened to the reality of his authority. So look with me at verse 6. We're moving on to this second point. Verse 6 through 8. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Who were the people questioning? It was the scribes, it says. The religious leaders. And How did Jesus know about their questioning? Did he hear them murmuring? No. He perceived in his spirit that they questioned him. In their hearts. Can you imagine having someone know exactly what was in your heart without you saying it? At first I was like, that would be amazing. And then I was like, that would be terrible. Um, Asp and I recently watched a TV show where a woman has this syndrome where people immediately started singing famous songs about how they were feeling in their, in their hearts, but only she could see them performing these songs, and it would just like happen in the middle of the day or, you know, when she happened to see them, and it, and it was incredibly powerful gift that she had. But how would you feel if you were in the world of that show and she could read your mind or your heart or hear your song? Jesus knew the song of their hearts without them saying a word. How troubling would that have been? You're thinking something and he says it. Awaking to the reality of Jesus' authority begins with realizing that he knows what's in your hearts. That's why you're hiding. We tend to hide from our hearts. At least I do. I can't tell you how many times in life that I've fake repented. I didn't even know it was fake repenting. By laying out some stuff to God but holding back other stuff as, as if by not being honest with myself about what's in my heart that I'm actually hiding it from him. Right? But Jesus is God. The first hint here is that he knows our hearts. 
He can read them even when we don't want to read them for ourselves. So one time I was meeting with a student who was all jumbled up and, and, and confused and, and going over like going like a million miles an hour and he couldn't slow his mind down. And I asked him, you know, maybe you've been going really fast and doing a million things trying to cover your real wound with tiny band-aids. And he said, yeah, I think that's it. Like it didn't take him long to, you know, I just said it and he's like, yeah. And so I said, maybe you need to lay your heart out before the Lord and come completely clean. And I read to him a portion of my confession from a few days earlier. And he looked at me and he, and he said, Danny, you're an ugly person. And I said, yep. And he said, I've never been that honest with God. In verses 1 to 5, we ask the question, who do we perceive ourselves to be in regards to the reality of Jesus' priority in ministry? In verses 6 through 11, we're asking, who do you perceive Jesus to be in regards to the reality of his authority? Right away, we learn, who is Jesus? The one who knows your heart. So why do we try to hide? Secondly, what, what is it that they're saying in verse 7, uh, saying in their hearts? Uh, verse 7 says, why does this man speak that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, in verse 5, when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, it was in what's the, in the Greek, the present passive voice, and it's more literally translated, your sins were, are sent away. So, in Leviticus 17 in the Old Testament, there was this notion of a scapegoat that we've sort of caught on and used in our culture. Um, And and on this goat, a person's burden of sins could be laid, and then they would be uh, sent away, freed, into the wilderness. Um, And this was a picture of God's forgiveness that he would have on his people's sins, that they would be sent away. But the scribes, they were upset because a declaration of forgiveness could only come from God or be announced by a priest on like a special holy day, like Yom Kippur. So if only God were able to either forgive sins or know without a doubt that sins had been forgiven, they were, the scribes were coming to a perfectly logical conclusion. This man is claiming to be God. And ultimately, the blasphemy of claiming to be God is the charge for which Jesus is ultimately condemned to death. Now, certainly, they weren't expecting God in human form. The scribes weren't, you know. Um, the Messiah King had been predicted not to be God. We, we didn't have any concept of that, really. Um, we... We are afforded the fuller story, you and I, to realize that no mere man could have served as a sinless, blameless, sacrificial lamb to pay for all of our sins. But it needed to be someone with such superior worth and purity that this death could rightly pay for the sins of countless people. 
So what does Jesus do with the confusion of the scribes? Does he come right out and say, I'm God? No. Look with me at verses 9 through the beginning of verse 12. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Now, this is a a, a great question that Jesus asks in verse 9. Is it easier to say you're forgiven or to make a paralyzed person with just the power of your words rise up, pick up their mat, and walk away? Which is easier? It's definitely easier to gesture, right? Um, Your sins are forgiven. So Jesus' purpose in healing the paralytic was to prove that he had the authority to do the prior, to pronounce forgiveness. But if we look at it more sort of on a cosmic level, we need to ask, which is actually easier to do? Not just to pronounce. Forgiving sin or healing a paralyzed person? I mean, Old Testament prophets and others had been able to perform miracles like this one. But only God can send away sins. So regarding the question of who do you perceive Jesus to be, the answer is not just the one who knows your heart, but also the one who can forgive. Who can actually forgive someone? Only the person against whom you've sinned can forgive you. Near the end of my freshman year in high school, I teased a friend of mine, this girl named Amanda, about something that I can't even remember what I teased her about. And she immediately stopped talking to me, and then she blackballed me uh, from all the events that she was hosting with our friends. Um, And then, in the fall of our sophomore year, her family was the host home for the building of the sophomore homecoming float. And so I went there with trepidation, and she ignored me the whole time. But at one point, her mom, who had always been really kind to me, came out with lemonade and was chatting with all of us. And before she left, uh, Mrs. Campana said, she looked at me and she said charitably, uh, charitably, don't worry, Danny, at least I forgive you. And she patted me on the back. So how did that make me feel? Not any better. It didn't. I mean, I'm a teenager. All I care about are my peers, right? But only Amanda could really forgive me. And this is why only God can forgive sin. He is the one against whom we've sinned. I find myself talking to students, taking students to to one passage more than almost any other. No, really, actually, more than any other passage. And it's Psalm 51. It's David's psalm of repentance after he has his episode with Bathsheba. And I'll take them through uh, the story of his lust, taking advantage of her, having her husband brought home to cover up her pregnancy, and then her husband sent to the front of the battle so that he would die, and then of the prophet Nathan's convicting David of his sin. 
And then in verses 3 and 4, I read with them what David says, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And they are completely amazed when I say that. But that's the reality. We lie to ourselves all the time and pretend that our sin isn't hurting anyone, that it's not known. Recently, I met with a student who refuses to admit that God is a person. And uh, we've sort of, he's been coming to our group some, and, and he, he would call himself a deist, but I don't even, I, don't, he, I feel like he's, I don't, I'm not, God's a, a feeling or something. But um, so when he says that God's not a person, I would say, okay, so, but God made persons, people, so he at least has to be a person, like with a will. <laughs> And, and they say, no, you know, I can't, no, God's just, that's too, God's just amorphous, we can't, and I was like, but if he makes people, he has to, like, that's the highest life form, he has to at least be a person, right? Like, no, you know, like, they were, and, you know, we kept talking, and I kept asking questions, and I, I realized that the reason he couldn't admit it, that God was a person, is that if God is a person, then his problems and his life They're not just psychological, needing to feel better about himself. If God is a person, his good behavior isn't, you know, relative and subjective and just, you know, to sort of make life in a society go easier. If God is a person, he has responsibility and he has guilt. If God is a person, his shame isn't just in his head. If God is a person, he needs forgiveness from God. Do you ever avoid repentance because you choose to ignore that your sin is against Jesus? Is it personal weakness, we might say, or an area for growth, or do you try to change your behavior to accommodate people? to look better in their eyes, or, or do you repent to Jesus? I think those are two sort of diverging areas that we struggle with. When that man was let down through the roof, Jesus told the guy that his sins were forgiven rather than just healing him so that we would see that our greatest need is forgiveness and thus be awakened to the reality of Jesus' priority but it was also so that he could sneakily awaken us to the reality of his authority, that he is God. Who do you perceive Jesus to be? The one who knows your heart? Or is he the one against whom you've sinned? Or is he the one who can forgive? Look at the very end of this passage, the second half of verse 12. It says, And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all so that they were amazed and they glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. 
The reaction of the crowd is stressed at the end of this story. Why? They were amazed. And who did they glorify? God, but not Jesus. Why is that important? Because they didn't recognize that he was God. He is the one who can forgive. If we see that Jesus is God, who died for our sin, when we're lowered down through the metaphorical ceiling in our complete and utter neediness, the sound of your sins are forgiven will be the sweetest thing that we could ever hear. And it will fill our hearts with the love to fill a thousand needs. What glory will Jesus have then? Far greater. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see that you have a plan that's a lot bigger than meeting our felt needs. And it's not that you don't care about our felt needs. It's not that uh, you don't answer prayer. But Lord, most of the time, we find ourselves living in an alternate reality actually a fictional reality that's determined by our felt needs. Would you awaken us to your priority? Would you awaken us to your authority? That you might also awaken us to the reality of your great glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.